Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, June 14th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, we have some big news coming out of Israel. Bibi is finally out as prime minister, so we have to talk about that. I also want to discuss our own head of state. After a busy start, President Biden's administration seems to have hit a wall, to borrow a headline in The Economist. What about you? Well, Reuters has an investigation into a flood of death threats aimed at election officials and poll workers. That's obviously very demoralizing, not to say shocking. So let's get into that and also talk about a much less serious development. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos merchandise is apparently doing very well online. I love that story. Yes. Sign of the times. (laughs) All right. Let's start with a couple of science and tech headlines, and then we'll get to the items. All right. First, China is quickly becoming the world's leader in artificial intelligence research. At least that's what we often hear. But here's a concrete measure of that. The creators of WuDao 2.0, a newly revealed AI model, say it's 10 times more powerful than GPT-3, its closest American competitor. Of course, that's coming from the government-funded Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence. But Politico reports this AI can generate pictures based on descriptions and predict the structures of proteins. John, how significant is this development? Well, we don't know for sure, obviously, Mm -hmm. but GPT-3 from last year was heralded as a big event. Um, China leapfrogging it is likewise being seen as a big event. Mm -hmm. I mean, this story is going to play out in, in stories like this. It's something that we follow in news items because, as Vladimir Putin famously said, whoever controls artificial intelligence controls the world. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. But I mean, aside from the superhero villain (laughs) buzz phrases from Mr. Putin, what I'd be interested to hear is whether there is uh, proof of effort, as we would say, in the world of crypto. I mean, you know, what is uh, I I think these developers should have to uh, should have to demonstrate their capabilities in a public forum so that we're not in a position of having to, you know, evaluate dueling press releases, so to speak. Right. I mean, I I do think that people have you know, witness what is what is being produced. Yep. But in terms of publicly available information, uh, there doesn't seem to be much about it. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, the what you would expect if it were publicly displayed. All right. So let's move on to a specific application of AI, speaking the language of the sperm whale. Researchers at the Cetacean Translation Initiative, or CETI, plan to train machine learning on the vocalizations of sperm whales to decode their potential meaning. You know, these. In a draft paper, the researchers write that whales could be, quote, capable of exhibiting a more complex grammar, and it is thus important to attempt to find the rules of this grammar if they exist, unquote. However, Life Science reports the algorithm may need roughly 4 billion recordings of the sperm whale sounds, and right now they have only 100,000. CETI hopes to get those via underwater microphones, drones, and even robotic fish. John, what do you say? Do you speak the language of whales? (laughs) (laughs) We love stuff like this. AI and whales. It doesn't get much better than that. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you start with a blank slate, and you put in all this data and the data gets sorted out 12 ways to Sunday, and from that become patterns. And the question is, are those patterns speech, or is that just noise, or whatever? Mm -hmm. In the same way that artificial intelligence can teach itself to play 
you know, go or whatever. Mm-hmm. Presumably it can teach itself how to speak whale. Yeah. That's the undertaking. And it'll be many years <laughs> before we know the answer, but it's a great story. No kidding. Like 4 billion recordings. They need 4 billion recordings. 4 billion is a big number. Yeah. And they right now they have only 100,000. How <laughs> long is this? At this rate, I mean, how many decades is this going to take? <laughs> you well, know? It's like, it's like the line from Jaws, right? We're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need we're, we're going to need a lot more underwater drones to That's get it. the job done. But yes. <laughs> if you take away nothing else from news items today, listeners, <laughs> let it be that. Let okay. It be that. All right. Let's move on to the news items. On Sunday, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister, was ousted by a single vote in the Knesset. A broad coalition of parties, including a far-right settler party and an Islamist party, formed a governing coalition. And it seems like the only thing that brought them together was their desire to finally get rid of Bibi. Naftali Bennett, Netanyahu's former aide, was sworn in as prime minister. If the coalition holds, then in two years, Bennett will be replaced by the centrist leader, Yair Lapid. Netanyahu will be going on trial for charges of public corruption, but on Sunday he told his party he would lead, quote, a daily battle against this bad and dangerous left-wing government and bring it down. John, do you think this is truly the end of Bibi's reign or simply an intermission? We don't know, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he lost the vote 60 to 59. So that's that's about as close as it could possibly be. The coalition that defeated him has, at least on paper, no reason to remain cohesive. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is sort of bound together by a disdain, if not hatred, of Bibi Netanyahu. So Mm -hmm. all he has to do essentially is piece off one vote and the game changes. He has been enormously effective in accomplishing what seems politically impossible. So I certainly wouldn't bet against him. His larger problem, obviously, is the public corruption case mm-hmm. that looms and, and haunts him, probably, both he and his wife. If this coalition gets good at being a coalition that holds together very disparate parts, mm-hmm. Then they'll be successful. If they're not, if they fall into factional warfare, then Bibi will be back for sure. Well, how likely is it that this governing coalition will take up very divisive or inflammatory topics? I mean, it seems like that would be the thing to avoid. Absolutely. And plus, Yair Lapid's part, I mean, he's got, they've got like 17 seats. That's the largest factor in this coalition, and they're, and they're mostly secular, right? Right. Last time we talked about Israel, we were discussing an op-ed, the crux of which was that Netanyahu and Hamas need each other. Remember that? We talked about this a couple uh-huh. of weeks ago. Right. So now that we've had this shift in power, maybe not unexpected, what's your take on that right now? Does Hamas need a villain in the form of Netanyahu? Are they sidelined by this? Are they... Are they defanged to any degree by this by the ascent of this unlikely coalition? I don't know the answer to that. I think we would have to have Tom Friedman on to explain mm-hmm. it, what the new dynamics are. Mm-hmm. That said, Netanyahu <laughs> would, would uh, dearly love Hamas to do everything it could to disrupt the coalition. So mm-hmm. he clearly needs them. But we'll try and get Tom on to explain it to us. Moving on. Election officials around the country continue to get death threats. That's according to a Reuters investigation that reveals a flood of threats and intimidation targeting even low-level election volunteers. The Reuters article focuses mostly on intimidation in Georgia, 
Among other disturbing items, it reveals that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his family went into hiding after Oathkeeper militiamen showed up at his house and his daughter-in-law's house was broken into. And here's a voicemail Reuters reviewed, which was left for Richard Barron, the elections director for Fulton County. You need to get your act together or people like me will really, me, go after people like you. Uh, it's, uh, there will be a riot, I think, somewhere. According to a county elections supervisor interviewed for the story, the threats will make it tough to recruit the workers and volunteers that actually make elections possible. What's concerning is that not just election officials, people presiding over polling booths and headquarters where the votes are counted, but elected officers of the government, congressmen, senators are receiving death threats, and not just them, but their family members as well. That's an indication that the forces of disruption, if you will, Mm -hmm. the militias, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, that those what are essentially terrorist elements Mm -hmm. are still active. So that's the worry, and it's a real worry. Liz Cheney has talked about this. Her colleagues have said to her that they've received death threats. Mm -hmm. It's not just Georgia. It's all over the country. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that the Justice Department under Merrick Garland is prosecuting the riot participants from January 6th with great zeal. And I suspect that that zeal will extend to any and all death threats that are made against either elected officials or officials who oversee elections. Yeah. And so uh, a question for you, has this malevolent threat activity increased, decreased, or remained the same since January 6th? Well, I think think it would have peaked after January 6th and sort of played out, but the effort by the Republicans in state after state to, uh, Mm -hmm. quote, reform, end quote, elections That, I think, has kept the idea that the election was stolen alive. Mm -hmm. Also, we have these upcoming audits, quote unquote, audits in Georgia and perhaps other places, which has given what I imagine to be false hope to the militias and the domestic terrorist organizations that presumably are behind these threats. You know, it it keeps that network, if you will, alive and up and running. And so it's not the end of this. All right. We're going to hear a message or two from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more news items. Welcome back to News Items. The Economist published a feature yesterday that outlines the legislative conundrum President Joe Biden faces. The headline reads, after a heady start, Joe Biden's legislative agenda has hit a wall. And it's hard to argue with their logic. Biden has to deal with the filibuster, tiny majorities, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Senate, and progressives in the House. And of course, Mitch McConnell, who has said, quote, 100% of our focus is on stopping this new administration. John, given all these headwinds, how do you think Biden will try to get his infrastructure bill passed? And will it work? I think they're going, you know, with go big or go home. I think that's where they've landed. You could have, had they wanted to go, you know, a sort of piece by piece strategy, they could have broken up this 
bill into parts, and then they could tell a story that piece by piece they put it together. Mm-hmm. And if they weren't able to get the last piece, they at least got the first two, something like that. But it seems from all the reporting that they've just decided to go for the whole thing all at once mm-hmm. and try and jam it through with these razor-thin majorities that they have in both the House and the Senate. We'll see. I can't imagine that it can work. Mm-hmm. Biden came into office in essentially a referendum on Trump. And so he arrives, takes the oath of office, and you know he's fulfilled his mandate. And instead of going in a much more modest and much more circumspect way about passing legislation and identifying issues on which there were broad-based support, like shoring up Social Security or shoring up Medicare, where it would be all but impossible for Republicans to vote against, they have instead come up with a gargantuan (laughs) budget to fund any number of initiatives, and they've thrown in other sort of special interest group stuff that is almost certain to fail. So I don't know how they get out of it. Once you decide to go big or go home, you have to go big. Mm -hmm. And the chances of being successful going big are probably not that good, if not hopeless. So are you saying that because the Democrats are going to move on pushing a reconciliation bill, that they're going to lose Manchin and Cinema? No, they've lost Manchin on the filibuster, right? Okay. But there's disease among four or five, uh, quote, moderate, end quote, Democrats about going forward with getting rid of the filibuster. And so that's that's not going to happen, right? So then you're left with the reconciliation or the watered-down version. And reconciliation is what the Biden administration is trying to figure out what the number is in all these proposals that gets Cinema and Manchin and Tester and maybe Susan Collins and maybe Lisa Murkowski, both Republicans, to vote for it. That's the game at this point. And the counteroffers so far from the Republicans on infrastructure have been dramatically less than what the Biden administration has proposed. So on and on it goes. You know, I talked to a friend of mine this weekend who said that he had talked to Senator Schumer, that all of this was kabuki, that a deal would eventually be Mm -hmm. struck and the ship of state would sail blithely on. You know, we'll see. Well, from what we said in the intro, I mean, Republican, you know, Mitch McConnell, they have no intention of negotiating with Biden on anything whatsoever. No one in the Republican Party has any interest in Biden's success Mm -hmm. leading up to the 2022 elections when Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy are relatively certain that they will be in the majority after those elections are held. So Mm -hmm. if Biden is looking for help from Republicans, he'll be disappointed. And so the argument amongst the sort of professional Democratic class is, you know, you're not going to get any help. So for get it. Just go big all the way with what you've got and get as much as you can and then hunker down and hope that 2022 isn't that bad. People wonder why we got third world infrastructure in this country. And that's, I guess that's why, I mean, we've got a dysfunctional political climate. That's why. Yeah, no, I mean, mean, the dysfunction of the political system uh, you can get stuff done, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. they got the first stimulus thing done. And during the Trump administration, they got a big stimulus package done that was enormously helpful during the pandemic to keep the economy afloat, keep people mm-hmm. from going broke, getting thrown out of their homes, and so on and so forth. So it's not like the government can't be effective. But when it is asked to be proactive, mm-hmm. it just gets 
garbled up in incredible cross currents of interest groups and, and political considerations and on and on it goes. And it's not pretty to watch. No, it's disgraceful. It really is. I mean, it's such an embarrassment. It's depressing for sure. But moving on, let's go to the next news item. Elizabeth Holmes will be heading to court on August 31st. She's facing a dozen wire fraud charges, and if she's convicted, she could go to prison for up to 20 years. According to CNBC, sales of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos-branded swag are way up. You can get a t-shirt with Holmes' face on it that reads, Elizabeth Holmes is my hashtag girl boss. Or if you want to spend around $17,000, you can buy an authentic Theranos lab coat, just like the one Holmes used to wear. Uh, Rebecca, what are we, what, what are we going to do with this? Well, what? I'm speechless. What can I say? <laughs> I I suspect it's a troll thing. I really do. I think a troll this is thing? like, yeah. What do you mean? Because Elizabeth Holmes is such a figure of ridicule, right? And I mean to wear a girl bo- a hashtag girl boss shirt with Elizabeth Holmes on it is like there's like a misogynistic message buried in there. Really? I think so. Yeah. So I can't buy one. Do you happen to know what the hammer price is on Farmer Bro merch? I mean, is Martin Shkreli as big of a seller? That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Would you ever use a Theranos coffee cup or, you know, in the spirit of of cynical irony? No. Nor would I. Nor would I. You know, for the one Elizabeth Holmes, there are probably 25,000 legitimate biotech female entrepreneurs who have not gotten anywhere near that level of venture funding and were... Certainly more deserving than this young lady. So yeah, whatever she's got to say in her own defense, I am not that interested in listening, nor am I interested in wearing her damn face <laughs> on my chest. You know, like, sorry. My only Theranos story is that my former boss, Rupert Murdoch, invested, I think, over $100 million in Theranos. Seriously? And, yeah, seriously. I think uh-huh. it was $120 million he invested in Theranos. And, and all he got was a T-shirt. Well, no. And so, you know, he goes, you know, he meets with her, obviously. I think he was on the board. And and George Schultz was on the board. And General Mattis was on the board. All these sort of big shot people were on the board. That's so embarrassing. I bet they're cringing. And she said to him, there's a reporter from the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, he's causing all sorts of trouble for the firm. And he's asking all these outrageous questions. And it's really hurting our, you know, our operation. And could you step in and basically make this guy go away. And uh, Rupert said, I have good editors at the Wall Street Journal, and I trust them to make the right decision. So no, I'm not going to interfere with their work. And uh, (laughs) for a guy who had $120 million on the line to say, you know what, I'll leave it to my editors. I think that's the best story anybody could ever tell about Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Well, that's and that's a good one. That's a good yeah. story. No, that's what I mean. It's the mm-hmm. best positive story. We yeah. could talk, you know, <laughs> a, a few All right. a, a few others. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something in our culture that sort of draws us to stories about con men and con women? Well, people have embraced this idea of fallen figures rehabilitating themselves. I mean, look at Michael Milken, you know, who right. went from being, you know, sort of the poster child for 80s uh, junk bond sales to becoming like a major cancer philanthropist. You know, people lap that up. Right. This luxuriating in the misdeeds might be a new thing. I don't know. What What do you think? 
Have you noticed a sea change? No. The case I remember, you know, very clearly was the Enron oh, sure. case when there was certainly no cultural fascination with those guys. It no. was just like put them in jail as quickly as possible and, and then never think about them again. You know, con artists are sort of a product of, you know, the reason they can get away with the con for so long is that they're a product of the environment, right? And, right. you know, and Elizabeth Holmes is a product of this... Silicon Valley biotech landscape where the future is moving so quickly that you don't have time to read the fine print because it's everything is so futuristic and so groundbreaking, et cetera. And it's right. also an environment where there is a considerable, I mean, she wore the black turtleneck. You know, an individual can be difficult or shady or get away with things that they would never, in a more traditional corporate organization, they would never get away with because the visionary leadership is so important. And, and also, I mean, she, in my opinion, capitalizing big time on a certain political correctness that doesn't measure up to the reality on the ground, which is that people were very quick to drop everything and praise this female founder to the skies because so few female founders get that kind of funding in biotech. You know, right. so she's sort of taking advantage of the mismatch, right? Right. Of the right. big talk and the no action, right? And that's, I don't know. I mean, I find her story distasteful in the extreme. I mean, I think she's a joke. I think this right. idea that, you know, I mean, I can't imagine why anyone would have Elizabeth Holmes as my hashtag girl boss unless you were like some kind of uh, funny, like incel troll in the basement who thinks that this is a funny joke that other people don't get. Gotcha. But it's, it is interesting to talk about folk heroes of fraud, which I guess, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's going to be her legacy. <laughs> Although who knows? Maybe she'll get off. I don't know. Maybe they'll you never <laughs> know, right? She's you got another know. trick up her sleeve. We don't know. All right. For deeper analysis on the political times we're in, I would recommend all of our listeners check out John's newsletter, News Items, on Substack. Go to newsitems.substack.com and go for the premium subscription, which is where you get the really choice stuff. And listeners should also know that Rebecca has a terrific website called investableuniverse.com. She reports and does analysis of what she calls the global market of things. It's terrific. Yes, including infrastructure. Yes. And including <laughs> infrastructure. So I highly recommend that you visit there. So that's it from us today. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer today is Simran Singh. And we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. We talk about two Januaries. January 2021, when the Capitol was overrun by rioters. And January 2020, when coverage of the coronavirus picked up pace in the media here in the U.S. and eventually around the world. Please tune in for that one.